Hey guys, real quick, before we get started, I have a small request. If you've been blessed by our content and you like this show, would you take just a brief moment and leave us a five-star review? This is quite possibly the most effective thing that you can do to ensure that this content gets out to as many people as possible. Thanks. All right, uh, welcome to another live episode. I'm going to be giving you my personal thoughts on the recent documentary that came out of the Daily Wire by Matt Walsh called What is a Woman? What is a Woman? A lot of guys have been talking about this, giving their reviews. Uh, Lord knows that uh, no uh, legitimate film critic is going to uh, review the film um, because they don't want to give it any credibility or even acknowledge it whatsoever because... um, Well, they can't actually answer the question. Hollywood is woke. Uh, Hollywood has completely hopped on board the LGBT, LMNOPQ plus uh, agenda on on board that train. And so they have nothing to say on the matter. They don't want to dignify it with any kind of response. But a lot of conservatives, people at The Blaze, people at Daily Wire, people all over the internet are giving their two cents. And so I'm going to give you mine. Um, The first thing about the documentary that I'll say is this. Um, I think that it is a much needed uh, documentary. This topic has to be addressed. Um, This is one of the things that we're called to do in scripture. So in the Proverbs, it says, uh, do not answer the fool according to his folly, or you will become like him. Um, But then immediately what we also see in the Proverbs is answer the fool according to his folly, or he will become wise in his own eyes. And I like what Greg Bonson says in regards to these two verses that seemingly contradict one another. One saying, uh, don't engage the fool. Don't stoop down to his level. Don't answer him according to his folly, um, or you will be like him. But then we also see, well, there are times where you need to answer the fool according to his folly, or he will become wise in his own eyes. Greg Bonson, and speaking of um, Christian apologetics, namely the presuppositional sort of apologetics. He says that basically what we're doing in this um, to answer the fool according to his folly is to use his own faulty logic against him, to step into his world, not assuming any of his presuppositions, not affirming any of his false beliefs, but to step into his, his world, meaning not his premise, but to step into his world in terms of his methods, his faulty logic, his faulty argumentation. And so to say, all right, uh, if A, um, then B. Uh, If you're saying this, well, then according to your own logic, according to your own argumentation, da 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 that is what it is to answer the fool according to his folly, to use his own folly against him. And I think that's precisely what Matt Walsh does a marvelous job of accomplishing in this documentary. And he's kind of the guy who's coined this uh, now famous question, what is a woman? Which, of course, that question is not rocket science uh, to come up with a question nor to answer the question, but it's been used um, again and again and again. It was used uh, even with the most recent uh, Supreme Court Justice nominee uh, with Contingy uh, Brown Jackson, you know, asking her that question. And she gave her infamous answer of, well, I'm not a biologist, uh, right? So you, you have to be um, a veterinarian in order to say, you know, the answer for what is a dog you have to, you know, so and people, you know, the, the, the right just had a field day, you know, memeing her. The, the right always has the best memes um, because the left is the most ridiculous, laughable, uh, mockable position. And I think that there is something to that. There, there is something to Christian polemics, not Christian politics. There's something to that also. Uh, but Christian polemics, meaning um, a sharp, serrated edge in our speaking and the way that we address the fool. Um, so there is times where we just, we leave the fool to himself. We don't, uh, we don't want to become like him. Uh, but there are times where we actually do respond to the fool so that he would not be wise in his own eyes. And also not just that he would not be wise in his own eyes, but uh, so that his foolishness, his folly would not appear wise in the eyes of all the bystanders, of all the people on the sidelines who are watching um, this event unfold. Uh, we, we're not just trying to win over the fool. We're trying to win over the crowd. And, and that's something you need to recognize about Americans, about human beings, uh, even uh, in regards to Christians. Um, we, we have one, you know, famous scene in the Old Testament 
with the showdown at Mount Carmel between Elijah and the prophets of Baal or Baal. And ultimately, you know, what you have in terms of, of this showdown is you have a competition between the gods, right? The false god Baal and the true god Yahweh. Which god is true? And let the god who is true reveal himself by answering through fire, answering by fire. And the prophets of Baal, they're, you know, crying out to their god all day long and Elijah mocks them. He uses mockery. He says, well, maybe your God can't hear you. Maybe he's on a trip. He's traveling. Uh, Maybe he's in the bathroom. Maybe he's on the toilet. You know, give him a minute. And the prophets of Baal are, are... screaming by this point and wailing, even slashing themselves, causing their own blood to flow, thinking that if they mutilate their own bodies, much like the transgender uh, fanatics in our society, that maybe their pagan God will see that and answer their cries, but their God is silent because he's not real. He is no God at all. And then Elijah, he kind of ups the ante and makes it even more difficult, as it were, for the true God, the uh, God Yahweh, the God of Israel, to answer uh, by pouring water all over the sacrifice and digging a moat around the altar so that it's filled with water and drenched. And then he cries out to God in heaven and boom. God answers with fire. But one of the things that that happens before this is Elijah says, not just to the prophets of Baal, so he addresses them with mockery. And that's godly and good and right. And I think that's what Matt Walsh does in this film. But but then uh, Elijah also addresses everybody else on the sideline. And I think that, that from what I can tell, I think Matt Walsh could have done more of that. Uh, not just mocking um, the progressive leftist secular religion, because it is a religion, a false religion, and they're false gods and they're false priests and priestess and prophets and all these things, which he does a wonderful job at um, in his dry humor, sarcastic way. He's one of the only guys that I could think of who could keep a straight face in the midst of the insanity that he's hearing from the opposition. Um, but, but I think there could have been more of addressing the false prophets with mockery, answering the fool according to his own logic so so that his folly would be revealed so that he would not become wise in his own eyes and others on the sidelines would not see him as wise. But I think there's addressing the fool, um, but there's also in using polemics, Christian polemics in that is appropriate, right? The 11th commandment, thou shalt not be nice, uh, thou shalt be nice is, is not a commandment. Uh, there's a distinction between niceness and gentleness. And, and real quick on that note, uh, we cannot so narrowly define the fruit of the spirit that is gentleness in such a way that it precludes the son of God. Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was full of the Spirit. He had the full measure of the Spirit at all times. And the fruit of the Spirit, it's not like a toolbox where you take out a hammer for this event, you know, you know, for this particular task, and you put it back in, and then you grab a screwdriver, right? So I'm going to use love here, and then, and then patience here, and then gentleness here. Uh, no, the fruit of the Spirit is, is more so like using actual fruit in, in the illustration. Uh, it wouldn't be nine different fruits like oranges and bananas and apples. It would be one fruit with nine characteristics, and it's not an exhaustive list, but um, but certainly there cannot be less than the nine fruits, characteristics, evidences, um, proofs, signs of the Holy Spirit, meaning that if somebody has the Holy Spirit, especially if somebody embodies the Holy Spirit in full measure as Christ did in his earthly ministry, then all nine characteristics, all nine fruits, evidences of the Holy Spirit are going to be evident. Um, they're going to be displayed. They're going to be visible. They're going to be manifest. Why? Because you don't get half of the Holy Spirit. And no no believer has half of the Holy Spirit indwelling them. Uh, but the problem is that because of the flesh and sin which still resides within the members of our being, Romans chapter 7, uh, because we're not the sinless Son of God as Christ was, uh, we have the full Holy Spirit, but the fullness of the Holy Spirit is often being veiled or masked by the, the sinful flesh by our idolatry, by our sin, but, but we have the fullness of the Holy Spirit in full measure in uh, the, the person of Jesus Christ, 
And it's not being veiled by the sinful flesh because of the impeccability of Christ, that he has no sin and he cannot sin. He is divine. He is the son of God. So my point is this, uh, number one, in terms of theology proper, right, our doctrine of God, uh, both the Westminster uh, Confession of Faith and the 1689 Second London Baptist Confession of Faith state in, in regards to God in his essence that God is a most pure spirit, and this defines both, both God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. He is a most pure spirit without body, parts, or passions. Meaning that God cannot be dissected into parts. All that is in God is God. So, so it's not just that God possesses certain attributes, but God is love. And the Bible says that, but, but we act as though, you know, God is love, but he possesses justice. No, God is love, but the Bible also says God is holy, holy, holy. Right, We try to make uh, this particular attribute of God, namely love, trump all the other attributes by saying, well, the Bible says that God has other attributes, but the Bible only says God is, ontologically, God is love. Well, that argumentation doesn't work. That's faulty hermeneutics. One, because it's, it's a false statement. The Bible says that God is love. Guess what? The Bible also says that God is holy. And if we're going to use those faulty hermeneutics, then we would have to then acknowledge, here's answering the fool, in this case, the foolish Christian theologian, uh, according to his own folly. If we use that kind of hermeneutic in, in exegeting the scripture, we'd have to say that God is precisely three times holier than he is loving. Because God is love, 1 John says, uh, but God is holy, holy, holy. Now, the better exegesis in our theology proper is to say that all that is in God is God, meaning God is all of his attributes. Uh, God is love and God is holy. God is just. God is all of these things. And God is a most pure spirit without body, uh, parts, or passions, right? So you and I, we are complex beings. And I'm using complex being in the philosophical sense, meaning that uh, we can be divided. If, if for, you know, God forbid, um, I had to have my, my uh, right arm amputated, I would still be Joel Webin. But there is no part of God. He is a simple being in philosophical terms. There is no part of God that can be severed or taken away from him. So, so God is not gentle at times, is what I'm saying, and then patient at other times. No, God is patient, love, peace, goodness, faithfulness, all these things all the time. These are the fruits, the evidences, the visible, uh, visible manifestations of God and the Holy Spirit is God. So those who are indwelled by the Holy Spirit will have the fruits of the Spirit. And the only reason they are not visible at times is one, because beauty is in the eye of the beholder, those who are on looking, who are witnessing the fruits of the spirit may not be regenerate themselves. And so therefore they may not, um, they may not equate the fruits of the spirit as the virtues that they actually are. They may see the goodness of the Holy Spirit as a vice because of their own wickedness, but also the fruit of the spirit, it's present it's there. You don't get half of the spirit, part of the spirit. You get all the Holy Spirit, um, but it is at times veiled because of the sin of the, the, the sinful flesh of the individual that the spirit is indwelling, that individual Christian themselves. Now, Jesus, who is sinless, embodying the whole spirit and to the full measure of the Holy Spirit, he is, is gentle all the time. He is loving all the time. He is patient all the time. Again, not tools like screwdriver and a hammer and a wrench, taking out one particular tool, just one at a time for one task and putting it back in and grabbing another. No, all of the fruits, all the visible manifestations of the whole Holy Spirit are evident in Jesus simultaneously. All that being said, that means there was never a time that Jesus was not perfectly modeling gentleness. So John chapter two, when Jesus fashions a whip out of cords and begins to turn over the tables of the money changers and drive them out of the temple, gentle, gentle. Listen to me, evangelical American Christian. Don't you dare invoke the 11th pseudo commandment, thou shalt be nice and use it to define gentleness in such a way that the son of God himself doesn't qualify as being gentle. Jesus used sharp rhetoric. You Pharisees, whitewashed tombs. You look clean and bleached on the outside, but on the inside, there's a rotting corpse and it smells like death. You're putrid. 
You clean the outside of the cup, but, but you leave the inside of the cup like a petri dish filled with bacteria and germs and disease. You're hypocrites. You put on a front, but it's not an accurate representation of who you truly are inside. Jesus uses this kind of polemical language. John chapter 8, you're sons of the devil. You are a chip off the old block. Children, one of the ways that you can tell who, who a child's father is, is that the child typically bears a striking resemblance to the father. Now, your father, the devil, he was a murderer from the beginning. He's a liar, the father of lies, and he was a murderer. And here you are bearing false testimony about me, lying, just like your daddy, the liar devil, and you are seeking to kill me, trying to murder me, just like your father, the devil, who was a murderer from the beginning. This is the language that Jesus uses again and again and again. He is Jesus, meek and mild. He is also Jesus, who is based and chad, for lack of a better expression. Jesus is both. And it's not at one point he's exercising gentleness, and at another he puts gentleness back in the toolbox and reaches for something else. No, gentleness is embodying all of this, right? Because one of the most gentle things that we can do is answer the fool according to his folly so that he may not, he himself might not be wise in his own eyes so that what? He might be humiliated, therefore be humble, therefore repent and be saved. So it is gentle to the fool themselves. But here's the thing that we miss. It's also gentleness to everybody standing on the sidelines, to everybody standing on the sidelines. This is what we miss. Right. We look at somebody's rhetoric and we say, oh, yeah, OK, well, what they're saying is true. You know, I don't disagree with what they're saying. I just disagree with how they're saying it. Uh, and and the reason why I disagree with how they're saying it is because the Bible tells us to be gentle and I don't think they're being gentle. Well, one, let's get our doctrine of God right. Theology proper Two, let's biblically define gentleness. Uh, three, uh, let's talk about, you know, shaking somebody by their shirt collar. If that's the only way to wake them up so that they might be saved, that actually is gentle right? It is gentle to go into a house that's on fire and, and, and soon to be burnt into ashes. If there's somebody sleeping in their bed, it is gentle to go in there and scream to, to rudely awaken them from their slumber that's about to end in their destruction, to scream at them. There's a fire and grab them if necessary to shake them and wake them up and get them out of harm's way. That is gentleness to the person themselves. But here's the other thing. It's, there is a, an element of gentleness to everybody on the sidelines. So back to Elijah right? It's, it's, it's Elijah and how he's addressing the prophets of Baal, but it's also, it's also, um, what, what's at stake is everyone in Israel on the sidelines who's watching. And one of the things that, that Elijah says is this, he says, Israel, oh, Israel, if God is God, worship him. If Yahweh is God, worship him. If Baal is God, worship him. Stop limping how long oh how long will you go on limping back and forth between two opinions that is i would argue over 90 percent of americans human beings globally and sadly even evangelical christians often oh, oh the vast majority are opportunist not ideologues so what matt is doing is is he is for the most part well, maybe not even for the most part, but he, he's doing a little bit of both. He is answering the fool, the ideologue, the person who actually believes this, this uh, baloney about transgenderism. He is answering the fool according to their folly, which is perfectly biblical and perfectly justifiable, permissible, and necessary, I believe, in this particular instance. Um, that person is an ideologue. That person has conviction. It's, it's false conviction. It's bad conviction. It is religious. It is demonic. Um, but that person actually actually believes what they're saying. But then Matt is also going and addressing all these people on the sidelines. Uh, that's Israel limping back and forth. That's the person who's not an ideologue, but the vast majority of humanity that's actually um, an opportunist. And what Matt is trying to do is he's trying to push back the tide, right? And, and actually show them, hey, there, there, there actually is objective transcendent truth. And it's over here. And this is actually the right side of history. And it will be proven to be the right side of history. So why don't you limp on over here? And I think that that is the result that this documentary, What is a Woman, is having for many Americans um, across the nation. That many people are, are saying, whoa, 
um, maybe there is something here. And it's not even just because Matt is making the best arguments that, you know, it's not that like none of these arguments have ever been made before. And it's certainly not because uh, the, the leftist progressive neo-Marxist has good arguments. They, they, they don't have good arguments now, which is blatantly obvious if you watch the documentary, um, but they've never had any good arguments. Um, the reason why people limp back and forth is not because, oh, well, it seems like there's validity on this side of the aisle. Oh, well, there seems like there's a credible argument on this side of the aisle. No, that's not why people limp back and forth. People limp back and forth because they are driven. The vast majority of humanity are driven by the fear of man. Not facts, but but opinions. And not their own opinion, but the opinions of what they think others think of them. That's where most people's identity actually comes from. It's it's not what they think of themselves, and it's not uh, what others even objectively think of them. It's what they think others think of them. That's how people define themselves for the most part. And that's what drives people to choose a particular side. So what Matt's doing is it's not just that he's crippling the opposition and showing the faulty premise of their arguments and making fantastic arguments himself. There's some of that, but a lot of this, the the arguments are inconsequential. We know what the truth is. A lot of what Matt's doing is he's just, he's revealing by by doing a a high quality, high level documentary to be viewed by, by hundreds of thousands, perhaps even millions millions of people across the nation, what Matt is doing is saying, not just that this is the right argument, but he's saying um, a lot of people are over here. You think, right? Because the left is really loud, right? And the squeaky wheel is the one that gets the grease uh, because of the legacy media and because the left is infiltrated over the last 40 years, all of our major institutions, they, they, they have postured themselves as though they represent the majority, but they actually don't. And so what you're seeing is in droves, people are switching teams right now. In droves, people are like, oh, yeah, I'm not woke. Well, you were 15 minutes ago. I know you were. I can look at your Twitter feed. (laughs) You were woke. You called me a racist because I was saying that CRT isn't a good idea. Uh, and, and that was literally, that, that was like, like last week. And now, but, but what we see is we see people switching teams and they're pretending as though they're not switching teams and they've always been on the right team because that's what people do right? Because of our pride and because nobody wants to be humiliated, you know, but, but people are switching teams in droves. And the reason why is because of critical mass. Once a certain amount of the population switches teams, then then what you see is in droves, a bunch of other people follow suit. And I think that that's part of what this documentary is doing. And that is a gentleness. That is a gentleness, a love, a kindness, a goodness, a faithfulness to not just the opponent, although I've already argued that there's, there's a sense in which it's even gentle and kind and good to the, the, the leftist that's lost their mind. Um, but it's certainly a gentleness and a kindness to a bunch of other people on, on the sideline, the third party, the mass of, of America, the, the, the mass of, of our population that has been confused and lied to and, and bewildered on this particular topic. It's a gentleness to them to say, hey, you can have sanity. It's okay. You can have sanity. You can be sane. You're not crazy. Um, and, and you're also the biggest thing I think in the documentary is uh, you're not crazy and you're not alone. You're not alone. And it's not so much that that message right there, you're not alone, is, is, is necessarily demonstrated in the documentary by Matt, you know, interviewing all these people who agree with him right? Because that's not the point of the documentary. It's to interview a bunch of people who disagree with him um, to show the fallacies, uh, to show um, the, 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 the foolishness of this foolish position. But, but even though he's not, it's not as though he's interviewing all these people who have the same correct view, um, but what he is doing by simply making the documentary itself and, and then it getting so much limelight and so much attention, uh, he is showing the viewer of the documentary that if they have his position, the sane position, the right position, they are not alone. All right. So those are some of the good things that I like about the film. Um, that being said, uh, you know, I, I think it was Jason Whitlock from uh, The Blaze, Fearless. You know, he said, not enough Jesus, not enough Jesus. And, and I would agree with that assessment because here's the deal. Um, it's as though at some level, Matt is saying, look, this is an apple and apples are good. We need apples, right? American, American dream, apple pie, right? They go hand in hand. Uh, you're an American. You claim to like apple pie. You can't have apple pie without apples. Uh, okay. But there's one other step. You can't have apples without orchards. 
and to say, this is an apple and apple is good. And we use apples and we like apples here in America. Um, but, but to not mention apple orchards in a context, in a culture that is currently chopping down apple trees and burning apple orchards, um, I think that that, that merits um, some kind of attention. That needs to be addressed. And I understand, I've, I've listened to Matt Walsh and his response to that, uh, that criticism and saying, well, I just, I didn't think it would be taken seriously. That, that's the problem. That is, I think that is the, the, the play that's been run for the last 40 years that evangelical Christians have bought into is um, that we won't be taken seriously unless, in, unless we adopt the left's premise, secularism, modernity's premise of neutrality. But that's a faulty premise. We can't adopt that. So, so here's the irony. In the very same way that, that I can't tell a man who, who is now identifying as a woman, I cannot address him as she, her, because that's lying to my neighbor. And I'm commanded by God to love my neighbor. So therefore, uh, how do I love my neighbor? Well, one of the ways that I love my neighbor is not bearing false witness to my neighbor and about my neighbor. I cannot lie to my neighbor. There's no such thing, despite what J.D. Greer says about pronoun hospitality. That, that's, that's an oxymoron. Pro- pronoun hospitality is like saying jumbo shrimp right? That, that is an oxymoron. Uh, take those two words, pronoun hospitality. Well, the way he's using it, pronoun means the wrong pronouns. So lying pronouns, deceptive pronouns and hospitality, which is meant to mean welcoming, warm, accommodating, loving. So, so basically pronoun hospitality, if, if we define that, it means lying love, deceitful kindness, that's an oxymoron, right? So in the same way that we can't exercise as Christians um, uh, pronoun hospitality because it's an oxymoron, it's a contradiction in terms, um, uh, you know, in the very same way, we also can't talk about apples and, and, and not uh, stress or at least mention the importance of orchards. This idea of neutrality, right? That's the left is saying, well, well let's be reasonable. Let, uh, let us come and reason together. You leave your presupposition, I'll leave mine, and let's come to this middle ground this neutral um, uh, ground of, of neutrality. Um, well, neutrality is a myth. Everything is moral. Everything has theological and moral implications. There is no neutrality. And so um, I actually think, going back to Proverbs, do not answer the fool, right? So answer the fool according to his folly so that he will not be wise in his own eyes. That's, I think that means use his own logic against him to show him, um, to show him his faulty premises, to show him that his argumentation doesn't actually hold up, that, that he is effectively sawing off the branch that he's sitting on, right? That's answering the fool according to his folly so that he would not be wise in his own eyes. And as I argued already, so that all the bystanders would not think that he's wise to their own doom and destruction. Uh, but, but we also have in the Proverbs, do not answer answer the fool according to his folly, lest you become like him. I think one of the ways that the the church has become foolish, become like the fool in answering them according to their folly is by adopting the faulty premise of neutrality. Adopting the faulty premise of neutrality. Now, Mount Walsh, to his credit, he would say, look, I'm arguing from nature. So yeah, I, I don't invoke divine law and I don't invoke Jesus. I don't invoke God and Genesis chapter one and Genesis chapter two. I'm, I'm simply arguing logic from nature. And I appreciate that, I, I, but I think he dr- needs to draw the, the um, connect the dots, the direct correlation from nature to God. That being said, though, an argument from nature is, to Matt's credit, an argument in his defense, an argument from nature is an argument from God because it is an argument of God's word. God speaking. Now, let let me explain this. In theological terms, we have both natural revelation and special revelation. God is speaking, um, but God does not only or exclusively speak in special revelation. Special revelation would be um, the Bible, the Old Testament and the New Testament. This is God's special, infallible, inerrant revelation. And, and, Technically, um, there, there is special revelation outside of the Bible, not today, but there has been in, in history, um, meaning anytime God spoke, not just inscripturated, but there were other times that God spoke that are not inscripturated, meaning uh, God speaking through the prophets, a prophetic dream, a prophetic vision. Um, anytime the prophets prophesied, uh, this is special revelation. 
This is special revelation and not all of the prophet's messages to Israel and other parties that were directly from God, his special revelation were inscripturated. So we do have special revelation outside of the Bible, um, but we don't have it recorded. And I don't believe that it's continuing uh, to happen today. I don't believe in any new revelation. That's special revelation. All right. Natural revelation is also God speaking. Um, Psalm, I, I can't remember the exact uh, chapter, but I believe it might be Psalm chapter 16, but it talks about the skies, the, 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 the heavens, but speaking of the skies, um, that the skies, natural created skies, the clouds, the sunset, the sunrise, the birds flying through the air, uh, that the skies pour forth speech. They pour forth speech. Whose speech? God's speech. Right? Romans 1 would be the most notable text on this particular uh, doctrine of natural revelation, right? That, that, that God's attributes have been clearly displayed since the beginning of the world by what he has made, by creation. God is speaking through creation, not all of his attributes. We, we need special revelation for the gospel, but natural revelation is sufficient to prove the existence of God and that God is a orderly God, a God of order, not a God of chaos, and that he's created, um, his creation, his created order has has divisions and distinctions like male and female. All this can be ascertained uh, by natural revelation. How do we know? Because uh, because it's affirmed by special revelation. Special revel revelation, the Bible, tells us that God speaks in natural revelation by what he has made. So to make an argument from nature is to, to make an argument from God because God is the God of nature. He's the one who created nature. And so nature, because it was created by God, says something about God. So when we argue from nature, we are making an argument from God's word. God speaks in his word, his, that is his written word, but also his created word both special revelation, the Bible, and natural revelation. But I do think that it's worth saying this, this comes from God. This comes from God. So I think you could have spent the majority of the documentary uh, making arguments from natural revelation, from nature. I don't have a problem with that. But I think at some point, though, you do need to say, and we can trust nature. We can trust nature, um, that nature has order, that nature is not chaos because nature did not come out of chaos, right? That's part of the leftist religion. It's not science. It is a religion. Part of the reason why they, they you have to see that this, that there's a straight line from I, I am free and freedom means um, an, an autonomous, creaturely, full libertarian freedom of each individual to do whatever the heck they want. And, and, and that is true because of of nature, the world we live in is a chaotic world, and the world we live in, this chaotic world, was created, came into being out of chaos, right? That's, that's evolution. That's the theory, and it is a theory, and it's a false theory, but the theory of evolution, that everything came out of chaos. It was all just this, this slow, primordial soup, evolving chaos, and out of chaos came this chaotic world. And because we have a chaotic beginning and a chaotic context that we currently live in, uh, we can live by a chaotic law, individual autonomous freedom to do whatever we want, um, including identifying as, as a woman, even though I'm a biological man, or at this point, we got people identifying as unicorns and cheetahs, right? So that's a, uh, I can do chaotic things because I live in a chaotic world and I live in a chaotic world because it has a chaotic origin. Okay. That's their religion. That's re their religion. And in that sense, they are being consistent. Now it's faulty logic. It's, it's, it's a false premise, but they are being consistent with, with their faulty logic. And so for us to say, no, you, you don't get to do whatever you want. Um, you, you do need to live in an orderly fashion, have an orderly life because you live in an orderly world and you live in an orderly world because it's been created by an orderly God. Right, so you make your arguments from nature, from natural revelation, but at some point you got to connect the dots. You got to at least mention it, um, and I don't think that that takes away the credibility of the film. And it's like, well, they wouldn't have taken us seriously. And, and my question for Matt would be this, and I ask this charitably because I'm appreciative of of this film, and I'm appreciative of a, a lot of what Matt does, his courage, um, and his his commitment to transcendental. Um, universal truth. Uh, but my question to Matt would be this. Um, okay, so you you didn't add that that element into the documentary. 
This all tracks back to God, that God is the basis for everything that we're arguing. You didn't add that in your documentary because you didn't want the left to dismiss it. So my question would be this. um, So did the left dismiss it? And the answer is, of course. Not one review from the critics by, by the Daily Wire's own admission, right? Ton of viewer reviews. I mean, people are watching this in, in the thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands, hundreds of thousands. I mean, they, they had the Daily Wire, the day that this was released, had more subscribers that day than they ever have before. And then, and then the next few days after that, they, they topped their record again of subscribers. So you, you've got, you've got so many people watching this, so many user reviews, um, uh, uh, reviews from the viewers, not a single review of the critics, right? Because the critics all belong to the woke, you know, LGBT LMNOP regime with Hollywood. Um, so my, my point is you left out the God stuff so that the left would take it seriously so that your opponents would take it seriously. Um, and yet they're still not taking it seriously. So, so why not just put in the God stuff? And, and I'm not saying that needs to be the whole film. I'm not saying make a 90-minute film um, like, like The Passion of the Christ with, with you know, uh, Mel, Mel Gibson. I, th- that's not what I'm saying. Make the film about what the film's about. And, and, and literally, 85 minutes of that 90 minutes can be exactly what the film already was. But, but right there at the very end, or however you want to do it, I'm not the you know, creative genius behind it. You guys did a great job. I, I don't presume to think that I could do something like that. So you guys decide the how and the when, but, but at some point um, you, you need to draw a straight line from, you can't live this way because this isn't the world that we live in. And, and this isn't the world that we live in because uh, this isn't the God who made the world. You need to live in an orderly way because we live in an orderly world because it was made by an orderly God. And that's, that's the basis for the argument. Because without that, what you're doing is you're, you're, you're hanging conservative values in midair. And, it, and it's just not lasting. So, so it, it can cause the masses who are opportunists, as I argued earlier, uh, it can cause the masses of Israel, the masses of America, to, to stop limping between two opinions temporarily. And, and to turn back to this value temporarily. But what will happen, I've said this again and again, but I'm going to say it once more now. My concern is that I see a conservative resurgence coming and I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful for that, but it's gotta be more than that. It's gotta be more than that. Um, Not just a conservative resurgence, but we need a distinctly Christian reformation Uh, because what I see happening right now in droves is some people are turning back to the Lord, but some people are simply turning back to Christ's principles right? There are people who are coming, uh, they, they are turning back to the principles of Christ while rejecting, rejecting the person of Christ. And I've said it like this, uh, you cannot um, indefinitely, maybe for a time, temporarily, but you cannot long-term embrace the principles of Christ while rejecting the person of Christ and expect to have the peace of Christ. You can't. You just can't. And so, I think, I think that you've got to root it in the God of, of the Bible and the God of this world. Uh, special revelation, natural. So you can still do it all from nature. You don't have to, you don't have to uh, do a full reading of Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3. You don't have to do a, a theological you know, exposit, expositing of, of, uh, of gender roles and, and, and nature between men and women from the Bible. Uh, you can still make the argument from natural revelation, but you have to say that natural revelation is credible uh, because natural revelation is the word of God. It is God speaking. Uh, that nature itself, God is saying something about himself by what he has made, right? That's the only reason why nature is credible, right? Uh, apart from that, if nature really is just the product of the Big Bang or, or matter being eternal and slowly, whatever, you know, scientists continue to change the theory, you know, every five minutes because they keep finding out that their previous theory was wrong. But whatever the, the current, you know, theory is around, you know, this secular Dar- Darwinian worldview and the origin of things, um, my point is, if you hang it right there, if, 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 that, if that's not debunked, and you don't have to take 90 minutes to debunk it. Take, take two minutes. But, but if that's not debunked, then, then arguments from nature, they lose their teeth uh, because nature has no authority. 
Nature itself has no authority if nature is simply the product of this catastrophic, chaotic, slow, evolving, whatever event, right? If, if nature isn't made by an authoritative God, then what nature manifests to us is not authoritative itself. And so you, you need to connect the dots. All right, I'm going to end with this, okay? So I, I, I debated whether or not to talk about this, but I think that it's worth talking about because um, now I'm, I'm, I'm directly speaking to the Christian, and I think I, I've been doing so all along, but um, for the Christian who's seeing the world lose its mind, seeing the, just the absolute insanity of, of these leftist, neo-Marxist, you know, homo-jihad regime that we have in our world today and all the transgender madness and all these kinds of things, um, I want to encourage you with 2 Timothy chapter 3. This is 2 Timothy chapter 3, and this is precisely, here's, here's the beautiful irony, the biblical irony that you'll see here, I hope. Um, this is precisely the chapter that is often cited to, to, to say that it is the will of God, it's, it's um, an inevitable reality that things will get morally worse and worse and worse until Jesus comes back. That it is the will of God. He has ordained uh, that, that basically everything will just spiral downward until the return of Christ. Um, I reject that. I reject that. I am post-millennial. And, and so I want to show you from the text that pre-millennials love to quote how it actually points towards post-millennialism and how I'm encouraged with what's going on because I think the tides are turning and I don't think they're just turning for a moment. It could be that. It could be that. Uh, but the, the pre-millennial would say, just like stocks, right? Um, the, the pre-millennial is, is doing, you know, um, th instead of calls, they're doing puts, right? They're, they're shorting stocks because they're betting on everything going ultimately down to zero, going go bankrupt. And so they would say, oh, well, there, there's occasional spikes up, but the ultimate trajectory is down. So that it's not perfectly, you know, consistently gradual downward all the time without any spikes along the way. Now, there are some spikes from time to time. And maybe, you know, maybe we're starting to experience a little bit of a spike and maybe we'll have a little bit of pushback, you know, from conservative Christians. And maybe this documentary represents some of that and blah, blah, blah. But that's just a temporary spike for a moment. But ultimately, the trajectory is downward. Well, I would argue the exact opposite. As a post-millennial, I don't think that it's always constantly perfectly going up. I think that there are dips, but I think the ultimate trend is upward. There are dips along the way, but I think ultimately it's upward. And people say, well, how could you have that view? Just look at America over the last 50 years. And I would say, that's the problem. That right there, you're saying, just look, meaning only exclusively look at one nation, America, over one period of time, a rather short period of time, the last 50 years. That's your problem. What I would say is look at the whole world over the last 2,000 years since Christ in his life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension to the right hand of the majesty on high where he is ruling both in heaven and on earth. Do we have more or less Christians than we had 2,000 years ago at the time of Jesus? More or less, right? I mean, people say, well, what about Hitler? You know, it's like the Third Reich can be measured in a matter of months. What about Babylon? What about Assyria? What about the Persians, right? What, what about the Ottoman Empire? What about, no, thing, things are getting better, okay? So look at this. This is 2 Timothy chapter three. But understand this, right? This is what the premillennial will quote all the time, and it's scripture. But understand this, that in the last days, there will come times of difficulty for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving, good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And that defines a lot of what we're seeing. All that is true. We see that that's relevant for today. Continuing verse five, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Well, we don't really see that. We saw that for a little while, uh, but, but the left has taken off the gloves, right? They're, they're done with the appearances of godliness, right? They did that for a while, right? The appearance of godliness. Well, we're the party of kindness. We're the party of compassion. I mean, even, even Elon Musk recently came out and tweeted and said, yeah, you know, historically I voted Democrat because I thought that they were the party of kindness. He doesn't think that anymore. Meaning what? They're no longer investing in the appearance of godliness. They're just coming out full swing, 
This is who we are. We are the party of death. We are the party of Molech. We are the party that, that kills children in the womb. And if we can't kill them in the womb, then we try to confuse them and chop off uh, the, their reproductive organs um, and, and, and pump them full of, of hormones. And then if we can't you know, be successful with that, then we try to indoctrinate them and brainwash them and turn them against their parents and against their country in public school. And if we can't, like, that's the left. Right, they, they are the party of death, mutilation, perversion. That, that is who they are. That's what they stand for. And they're not even trying to hide it anymore. I mean, they, they are still a little bit, but not nearly as much as they used to. They're coming out full throttle. They, they are, are taking off the mask and showing the, the, the nasty, hideous monster that's been underneath that mask all along. So the appearance of godliness, verse 5, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 5, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Well, th- there's not a whole lot of that. There was not, not, not as much anymore. And there's a reason I'll explain here in just a moment. Um, avoid such people. There's the exhortation, right? There's, there's the, the command that the apostle gives to his son in the faith, Timothy, avoid these people, stay away from them. Okay. He continues now verse six for among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women burdened with sins and led astray by various passions. Uh, let, let me just say this. You won't like this, but but it needs to be said. Did you know we wouldn't have a single Democrat president in the last 50 years here in America if women couldn't vote? If we got rid of women's suffrage? Did you know that ironically, the suffering of women, <laughs> you can trace back to women's suffrage? Did you know that feminism hates women? And, and even first wave and second wave feminism had the roots of a hatred towards women? That, that, that women voting, listen to me, all right, because some of you, you're like, what, what in the world is he talking about? That is, that is so um, offensive. Look, the reason, the reason why this is a problem is because what it ultimately sought to do was split the household vote. Women did get a vote. They always got a vote by proxy through their husband, their household. And, and I know you, you want to you immediately point to the exceptions, um, but, but we can't major on the minor. And, and minor on the major. The exception is not the norm. The exception is not the rule. So yeah, there were some abusive uh, husbands that didn't care what their wives thought and blah, 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 blah. Yeah, there, there have always been sinners in the world, in this nation and everywhere else. Um, but, but men voting, and for, in large part, in that culture, men were married, right? They were voting for not just themselves, but for their wives and children. It was the household vote represented by the federal head of the household, the head of the household, the man. But it was their vote, not just his vote. It was their vote. And he got the final say. Yes, he got to, to make the final decision on how they would vote. Just like Joshua said, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Well, that man would say, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord in every realm of life, including the, the civil realm, the political realm, and how we vote. This is our vote. Women's suffrage was to turn wives against their husband. It was. It wasn't just about valuing women, dignifying women, saying that a woman has just as much value as a man. No, no, no. There were more sinister motives at play. Maybe not by everyone. I think a lot of people were just naive. But that's the best case scenario we could say is naivety. The worst case scenario for some was deceit and malice to, to break up households to break up households. And that's what feminism has always been about, liberating women from the prison of their home, the prison of their marriage, the prison of their children. And now what you have is a bunch of women who would love to be wives and mothers and stay at home, and they can't. Because feminism has shaped our entire economy to where now it is virtually impossible for, for a single income household to financially sustain itself. You know who loves feminism? Wicked men. Wicked men. Righteous women hate feminism because of what it's done to them. Wicked men, who I would say were the, the origins, the, the inventors of feminism, they love feminism right? That, that greedy corporate employer, not that all corporate employers are greedy, but some are that greedy corporate employer. He loves feminism because when a man comes into his office and says, I have a wife and three children at home and, and I'm not being paid a livable wage. He can now respond by saying, and what gives you the right to let your wife stay at home? Why doesn't she come and work for our company too? So I can give each of you half of a wage and get double the work. 
<laughs> Corporate America loves feminism. Uh, perverted men who want to have sex outside of marriage. They don't want to give vows to a wife, don't want to love a wife, want to sleep around and then leave it. They love feminism. And, and Democrats, Joe Biden loves feminism because he wouldn't be president if it wasn't for feminism. He wouldn't be elected if it wasn't for feminism. So back to the text. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women. Now, again, there are exceptions to the rule, right? Ali Bestucki doesn't vote Democrat. My wife doesn't vote Democrat, right? There are women who are awake. There are women who, who can see. But by and large, I'm just speaking in general terms, right? There are some women who could bench press more than some men, right? Because there are some men who are weak and some women who are physically strong. But that's not the generality. That's not the norm. Likewise, in the same way that on average, in general, men can lift more weight, physical weight than women. Well, also in general, men understand politics and truth and vote better than women. And that's why God has given women to men to steward and love and nourish and cherish and lead. Adam was not deceived, the apostle Paul says, but it was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. Adam sinned, and I would argue from that because he sinned with his eyes wide open, as it were, he was actually even more morally culpable. So he's not less sinful, he's more sinful. So this is not an argument about how women are more sinful than men. I'm simply saying that women are more easily deceived than men. And people don't like that. They're like, that, that argument died a long time ago with, 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 uh, with our soft, squishy complementarianism. We worked really hard to get rid of that notion. No, it's, it's just, it's a reality. It's not a notion. It's, it's a reality. We live in God's world. And God created women to have certain strengths that men don't have, like compassion. Women in general are more compassionate, more caring than men. But see, that's precisely why you don't want a woman on the Supreme Court. Well, what about Amy Coney Barrett? Yeah, praise God. That's great. That's great. But it's not ideal, right? So, so what, what does a woman do? If, if, if she is, is if, if her, the way that God has created her and hardwired her, if she is more bent towards empathy, for instance, and compassion and, and sympathy and, and forgiveness and mercy and these kinds of things, right? This is why we send men to war. And, and, and what do we give to women? Children. Right? Because the, the qualities of women, uh, that's precisely what, what, what young children need. Nourishment, kindness, patience, forgiveness, mercy. But what happens when, when a woman who would thrive as a mother is now using her maternal instinct, being guided by her maternal instinct with a child predator? Well, Kentonji Brown Jackson, that's what you get. Soft on perverts, soft on pedophiles, right? Why? you can say well, what she's doing is wicked and what she's doing is sinful. And yeah, yeah, there is a sense of that, but also it's, it's, it's what we're doing by putting her in that position in the first place. She is treating this pedophile the way that, that, that a woman treats people, which means then what do you do? Surround her with the right people, namely her children, her children. Because everything that Kentonji Brown Jackson, all, all the qualities and, and virtues, right? Because they're not actually vices. They're virtues misapplied. So they become vices or they create opportunity for vice. They're, they're actual virtues, but misapplied. And they're misapplied because she's in the wrong context. She's in the wrong context. So let me go on. That was uh, verse six. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions. Verse seven now, always learning the truth. Or I'm sorry, always learning knowledge, yet never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. So there, it, it makes sense. They, they, they would fill the ranks of academia. They love learning. Oh, they love reading and writing dissertations. Oh my goodness. They, they love wearing robes and tassels and sitting in the seats of honor with, their, with all their, their, their documents and, and letters, uh, you know, in front of their name and all the diplomas on their wall behind them in their office and all these different things. They love it. The accolades, the praise. Uh, they love academics. They love learning. 
And they learn and learn and learn, but they never arrive at, at the truth. They never arrive at the truth. But here's, here's where we get post-mill. Okay, so all oh, that sounds pre-mill, right? All oh, that sounds like these are the last days. Th- these are the type of people that, that the last days will be defined by, marked by. And, and therefore, things are just going to get worse and worse. But notice real quick, before we go to verse 8, notice um, none of that says the last days there will be progressively more and more of these people. See, that, that kind of messed you up, huh? Right? See, that's what we call eisegesis. That's, that's, that's because you watched Left Behind growing up in, in, in your youth group and your youth lock-ins. And, and so all of a sudden you have a presupposition that you may not even be conscious of and you're reading it into the text, not reading out of the text what God actually says, but reading into the text your foregone conclusions, your presuppositions. See, you read the first seven verses 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, and you immediately input that the last days, what we'll have is progressively more and more people who, who look like this. That's not what it says. What, first, what, what does the last days mean? The last days is simply a label, a placeholder for, for the entire church age. It's not the last days, meaning uh, the last two years before Jesus' return or the last 10 years before Jesus' return. Get get the dispensational uh, presupposition out of your head for a moment. No, the last days means all of the time, the church age in between the ministry of Christ, his first coming and his second. All of that is what the Bible refers to as the last days. All that. So, so far what we've had, just getting real practical here, 2,000 years of last days. And all that's being said by the Apostle Paul to his son in the faith that he loves, that he wants to persevere, is he's saying that that during this time period, which for us, we now know, has gone on for at least 2,000 years and is continuing. We don't know how much longer, but but it's not over yet because Jesus hasn't returned yet. All, All that Paul is saying is that during these last days, however long these last days last, you can be sure that there will always be this group of people, people like this. And these people will go from bad to worse. So there is a progression in the text, but it's not a progression of, of a numerical growth that there will be 10 people like this. But, but as we get further in the last days, there'll be a hundred people like this. That's not what's said. What, what, what's said is that there will be bad people during the last days, from, from the first coming of Christ to his second coming, there will always be some bad eggs. There will always be some bad people, sometimes more bad people, sometimes less bad people, not in a gradual progression, but sometimes more, sometimes less under the sovereign plan of God. And, and these people, the individuals themselves throughout their lifetime will go from bad to worse. These people will progressively become more immoral. And that's actually, now that we're ready to read on, verse eight, that's actually a good thing. The individuals, it's not a progression of there will be more and more bad people. No, there will just always be bad people and the bad people themselves will get more and more wicked. And that's actually hopeful. That actually plays into the post-millennial eschatology, believe it or not, ironically. Verse eight, Just as Johnny's and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also oppose the truth. Men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. That's what you see in Matt Walsh's documentary. You see people opposing the truth. People who are disqualified. Uh, People who have no basis for their opposition. People who can't answer the most basic question that, 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 that any conservative political pundit could come up with. What is a woman? What is a woman? It's not that hard. No, you do not need to be a biologist. My, 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 my four-year-old and two-year-old daughter can answer this question. A biological female, a female human being, an adult female, right? What is a woman? It's easy, easy, but, but they can't answer it. They, they, they just as Johnny's and Jambres oppose Moses, so these men always oppose the truth. They're corrupted in mind. Their minds are not just immoral in terms of corruption, but they're warped in terms of, of their very intellect. They, 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 they're, they're becoming more and more illogical because here's what sin does. 
This is what immorality does. Um, it, it forces you, just like, like lying, okay? Take that as an example. You tell a lie, and then, and then what's the very next thing you inevitably have to do? You either have to confess and repent, or you have to tell another lie to cover it up, to remain consistently inconsistent, to be consistently inconsistent. That's what the T is in the LGBT. See, the L and the G and the B, they don't like the T. But the T is the consistent progression of the L, G, and the B. It is. And the L, G, B, uh, the L, G, B they don't like the T because, because it, it, it undermines the very fabric of their existence. Lesbians and, and gay males, homosexuals and bisexuals, they need gender. They need a binary system of gender for their position, their identity to even exist. So they don't like the T. They don't like the T that's trying to undercut, but the T is the natural progression that flows out of the L, the G, and and the B. It is. It's the fruit. It is the fruit. Transgenderism is the fruit of homosexuality. And to be fair, homosexuality, I would argue, is the fruit of of egalitarianism and getting rid of, of, of the distinctions between men and women. Homosexuality is the fruit of feminism. And that's the irony. Feminists are really upset about transgenders because they want to get rid of females, right? Feminists are really upset because now hulking dudes like Leah Thomas are taking all their trophies and competing against girls. But, but transgenderism was always going to be the end result of feminism because feminism design, it, it de- denies and defies God's design for men and women. It says that there's really no difference between men and women. And transgenderism just takes that premise and says, okay, that's all it is. It's just taking the feminist premise that that anything you can do, I can do better. I can do anything better than you. Good. Then we don't need female sports. That's all it is. It's just the logical conclusion. It is being consistently inconsistent. You can't be partially inconsistent. If you want to be partially inconsistent, then you need to be consistently inconsistent. Right? There is no halfway house between Christ and chaos. It's either Christ or chaos, and there is no halfway house in between. Dave Rubin would be an example. He wants a halfway house in between Christ and chaos. You can't have it. It's either Christ or chaos. Transgenderism is God's judgment on the L, G, and the B, and on the giant F, feminist, and on all the apathetic, squishy, spineless, passive men who let it happen on our watch. That's what we're seeing. So verse eight, here we go. One more time. Verse eight, I'm almost done. Just as Jonas and Jambres, who are Jonas and Jambres? These were the right, the right hand henchmen of Pharaoh. His, his lead ma- uh, magicians that, that kept trying to one up Moses, but kept getting demolished, right? Any, any of the signs and wonders that Moses performed in the 10 plagues on Egypt, they, they would try to replicate. They would try to counterfeit those signs. That's all that Satan can do, by the way. So whether these guys were doing it by cheating, like a, like a magician would do things uh, from, from natural means, but, but it, it creates an illusion, or whether they were actually doing this by the power of Satan, and I would lean towards the latter, either way, even Satan with his supernatural power, which he has, it's still a counterfeit power. It is a supernatural power, but it, but it is a counterfeit power to God. And so everything that Satan does, all he can do is he can counterfeit, he can replicate, but he cannot actually produce what God's power produces. And so Jonas and Jambres, the right-hand henchmen, the, the, the chief magicians for Pharaoh, um, they're opposing Moses in the same way Paul tells Timothy that there will always be people throughout this this time between Jesus' first coming and second coming, namely the last days, there will always be some bad people and those individual bad people over the course of their lifetimes will go from bad to worse. They'll get progressively more immoral because their inconsistency will cause them to be more and more consistent with that inconsistency and produce even greater and greater depravity. Uh, But just as Jonas and Jambres opposed Moses, but they were not successful, God one-upped them. They didn't one-up God. God's power was greater in the same way, in the same way these men will also try to oppose the truth, but they will not be successful. Here's verse nine, but they will not get very far. Boom. There goes your premillennialism. Because the whole basis is things are going to get worse and worse. The last days, Joel, look, I, we, we know we're living in the last days right now because uh, there, there are people who are disobedient to their parents and ungrateful and unholy and heartless. And so, 
there have been people like that for 2,000 years. Well, there are rumors of wars in Ukraine. There have been rumors of wars for 2,000 years. There's pestilence and disease and, 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 and there's COVID. There's been things like this uh, for, for years. There's always been these things. Always, right? And so, so with, with this, uh, people say, well, there, there's always been these things. But look at verse 9. Verse 9, the, the, here, here's the, the final nail in the coffin. Here's the crescendo where Paul peaks, where he climaxes. He says, but they will not get very far. So he doesn't say things will get worse and worse and worse and worse and more and more people will join them until eventually it's everybody except for this small little remnant of Christians, but Jesus will come back and in the bottom of the ninth, right before Christians tap out, Jesus will save them after a seven-year tribulation or right before it or in between. Pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib. That's not what it says. It says these men will not get very far. Why will they not get very far? For their folly will be plain to all. That brings us right back right back to Matt Walsh's documentary that I think in large part was fantastic. And I appreciate they will not get very far for their folly will be plain to all as it was with those two men, Jonas and Jambres. Uh, Jonas and Jambres, it's not just that they didn't beat the God of Israel. Their power, their counterfeit power, demonic power was insufficient, was, was inferior to the power of the God of Israel. It's not just that they didn't win. Um, they were publicly humiliated. It's not just that they didn't win and they knew it. They knew that they had lost. Everyone knew they lost. It was plain to all. They didn't get very far. But notice what, what the text says is it doesn't just say, hey, they'll be unsuccessful. These wicked people will be unsuccessful in their opposition to the truth. It also says, not only will they be unsuccessful, they not, not get very far, but it says, and their folly will be plain to all. And that's exactly what this documentary does. What is a woman by Matt Walsh with the Daily Wire? What it does is it doesn't just make sure that these radical, ch- child-hating, religious, pagan leftists don't get very far, that they don't succeed, uh, but it also, it answers the fool according to his folly so that he's not wise in his own eyes or in the eyes of anybody else. It takes his folly and it publicly displays it so that his folly is plain for all to see. And we need more of that. We need more widespread, publicly viewed, massive, Um, pieces like this that take the folly of those who hate Christ and make it not only plain to them, but plain to all. They need to be mocked, publicly mocked. That way, Israel, in our case, America, no longer goes limping in between two opinions. But here's the deal. The two opinions, it it can't be chaos and conservatism. It's got to be chaos or Christ. So take two minutes, Matt, in your next documentary and draw the line to Christ. Other than that, well done. All right, thanks for tuning in. I hope this has been helpful. Thanks so much for listening. But real quick, before you go, do us a small favor, take a moment and leave us a five-star review if you enjoyed the show. This is undoubtedly the best way that you can help us get this biblically faithful content to as many people as possible. Thanks so much.